0: DL reads books and difficult legal stuff aloud. No Stutzo, guests or comedians in this episode. Nearly all our episodes provide a companionable, chatty and entertaining experience. These Judy DL reads stuff aloud episodes are solid legal documents and a serialised novel that I like. Welcome. I'm Judy DL and I'm a radioactive cockroach. I adopted this identity in response to how I felt when I began making formal disclosures of historic sexual assault and engaging with the processes. People couldn't help but recoil from me and I felt like I should just scuttle back under the fridge. It turns out I'm far from alone. If you too have felt a bit cockroachy, you'll also know... We are the ultimate survivors. To your land Radioactive Cockroach is recorded with gratitude and respect for elders past, present and emerging. On the land of the Jajawarra,
1: sovereignty was
0: never ceded, always was, always will be Judge Aboriginal land. Jajawarra, When I was embroiled in legal processes after making formal complaints, it was a great grief to me that the stress of engaging in the processes robbed me of the joy of reading. I could no longer fall easily asleep with a book in my hand or engage with a difficult text. But I discovered I could listen and walk or cook or chop wood I could remain agitated and still access stories and information. So, here we go. First up today, you get to listen to the next instalment of Dorothy L. Sayers' Strong Poison. If this is your first time or it's been so long you need a recap, The other instalments are in Series 2, Episodes 3, 5 and 7. So Dorothy is up first, and after our usual gallop through the plot, it's a really good bit about dodgy seances. If you're here for the legal bit, and this episode it's defamation, jump 48 minutes. (coughs) more than you could oh, or I could oh, Bessie couldn't help it though oh, she tried to be good oh, oh so good oh she was pretty as the heaven above oh. oh boy and how she could love oh Bessie had affection that was simply all the be dead don't go down in my mind in. Bessie couldn't help it any more than you could oh or I could oh. we continue our gallop through the plot of Dorothy L. Sayers Strong Poison Chapter XIV, otherwise known as 14. This is a fabulously entertaining account of Miss Murchison's charade as she carefully and conspicuously performs making an error and agrees to stay back and correct it. She has, of course, pre-prepared the correction and devotes the time to gaining access to the deed box with competent use of the picklocks supplied by Blindfold Bill. Having invaded the curiosity of a colleague and the charwoman, she picks the lock and discovers a letter from Mrs. Rayburn dated 1920. Mrs. Rayburn expresses her gratitude for Mr. Urquhart's diligence in managing her financial affairs and asks that he establish a trust with Urquhart himself as sole trustee to manage her affairs entirely. Now aged 80... She anticipates an inevitable decline, and so is planning for that eventuality. I think it's what we would call granting full power of attorney. Significantly, she requests he visit to draw up both this document and her will. The confirmation of the existence of the will has, Miss Murchison feels, crowned her illicit venture in glory. She heads off to treat herself to supper in Soho, humming, she realizes with some amusement, sweeping through the gates. I really like Miss Murchison. (laughs) Chapter XV, otherwise known as 15. And Whimsy treats Miss Murchison to a splendid lunch. There follows an eloquent insight into Whimsy's tortured state of mind, as he has not yet saved Harriet from the hangman, who, he wonders idly, cares for the frail and fading Mrs Rayburn. He dashes out to Miss Clemson, the manager of Whimsy's cattery that employs Miss Murchison, and she's also the juror whose high church Anglican conscience enabled her to stick out for Harriet's innocence when sitting on the jury. Whimsy commissions her to go and visit a boarding house in the village where Mrs Rayburn lives. It's a common practice for genteel ladies of her class to go and stay in boarding houses and to collect as much gossip as possible, especially find out who nurses Mrs Rayburn. Whimsy's next port of call is to Chief Inspector Parker. Amid much bluster from Parker about respect and worthiness and class, Whimsy prevails upon him that he is being hopelessly Victorian and making Lord Peter's sister, Lady Mary Whimsy, with whom he has been dining for five years, very unhappy. It is this last information that steals the resolve of the smitten Parker and he promises to propose marriage to her Pronto. But, before Whimsy leaves, Parker gives him bad news. The packet from which Philip Boys dispensed to the mysterious white powder, which he had scoffed down in the pub on the day he died, has been found. It was bicarbonate of soda. Not, therefore, suicide. And we go on into chapter XVI, or 16, when the lawyers say, I told you so. Lady Mary and Chief Inspector Parker's bliss serves to irritate Whimsy's own state of mind. But the voluble letters from Miss Clemson to Lord Peter are opening a crack in the shutters on the window of hope. As usual, Dorothy L. Sayers embeds her plot development in hugely entertaining observations of character and social mores. So we learn a great deal about the travails of train travel, the life of single older women in genteel boarding houses, village tea shops and cafes, and village life in all its glory. Her cover story is that she has come into enough money to buy a cottage in the district, where she intends to paint watercolours. She's looking about. She has discovered Mrs Rayburn's large and beautiful house, a short omnibus ride, fair one penny, from the village. It's largely shuttered, but a smoking chimney confirms habitation on one side of the house. She has discovered Mrs Rayburn has a nurse companion. There are also a couple of servants and a housekeeper in residence. Under a number of plausible pretexts, sketching, shopping and creating a dropped parcel so she can stop people at random to ask if it's theirs and so begin to chat, Miss Clemson strikes up a conversation in a cafe with Mrs. Rayburn's nurse, Miss Booth. It quickly emerges that Miss Booth is an enthusiastic spiritualist and is reading a book called Can the Dead Speak? at her cafe table. We then learn the extent to which spiritualism preoccupies the attentions of women in boarding houses. Miss Clemson is not one of them, as her rigorous high church practices forbid it. But her curiosity had led her to strike up the acquaintance of an interested sceptic while holidaying in Bournemouth. This sceptic taught her many tricks of the trade employed by spiritualists to fake a séance. It's clear to Miss Clemson that Miss Booth is very vulnerable and in the hands of a charlatan. And so she ingratiates herself as an experienced and knowledgeable person in the world of spiritualism who has been told she has nascent medium powers. She arranges to sit with Miss Booth and contact the other side. She has two motives. Firstly, find the will Mrs. Rayburn's will, for Lord Peter. And secondly, warn Mrs. Booth off the charlatan via a trusted voice from the other side. The second appeases her conscience over the deceit. She makes a few purchases from the hardware shop and spends an industrious evening fashioning her tools. And then off she goes to steal Mrs. Rayburn's will. Chapter XVII 17 Miss Clemson enjoys a delicious meal with Miss Booth in a beautiful panelled room of Mrs Rayburn's house. They decide to sit in Miss Booth's private sitting room for a seance where Miss Clemson waits while Miss Booth goes to settle her now largely insensible patient for the night. Miss Clemson takes the opportunity to examine all the memorabilia on the crowded mantelpiece, memorising names, dates, locations, and making quick inferences regarding what has been important to Miss Booth throughout her life. When she returns, Miss Booth finds Miss Clemson seated by the fire, deeply engaged in a novel. Miss Clemson readily agrees to all Miss Booth's suggestions regarding her accustomed arrangements for a seance, including a lightweight bamboo table, low light so as not to disrupt the vibrations, and Miss Clemson's back to the fire. Miss Clemson could think of no better conditions for the faking of phenomena. They agree on Miss Clemson as medium and Miss Booth as note-taker. Miss Clemson is able to use her home-manufactured sleeve hooks to manipulate the table and produce loud raps by pressing on a soap dish which is fastened between her knees with a garter. So, combined with the information she has gleaned from the mantel shelf, her knowledge of how séances are generally faked, as well as her considerable performance skills, she absolutely gains the confidence of Miss Booth. She goes home in a taxi with a return date set. Chapter XVIII, 18. Back at the boarding house, there is a general denouncing of spiritualism and of Mrs. Craig, the false medium who has so influenced Miss Booth, in particular. I particularly enjoyed the testimony of one Mrs. Pegler, and here read the paragraph in full. There, I agree with you. "'said Mrs Pegler. "'No words can express the disgust I feel "'at the intrusion of women like this Mrs Craig "'into realms that should be sacred to us all. "'Imagine, Miss Clemson, "'that that woman, whom I do not know "'and have no intention of knowing, "'actually had the impertinence once "'to write to me and say that she had received a message "'at one of her seances, as she calls them, purporting to come from my dear husband. "'I cannot tell you what I felt.' To have the general's name actually brought up in public in connection with such wicked nonsense. And of course it was the purest invention, for the general was the last man to have anything to do with goings-on. Pernicious poppycock, he used to call it in his bluff military way and when it came to telling me, his widow, that he had come to Mrs Craig's house and played the accordion and asked for special prayers to deliver him from a place of punishment, I could only look on it as a calculated insult. The general was a regular churchgoer and entirely opposed to prayers for the dead or anything popish, and as to being in an undesirable place, he was the best of men, even if he was a little abrupt at times. As for accordions, I hope wherever he is, he has something better to do with his time. So, Miss Clemson sits again with Miss Booth on Saturday. They have come to terms with the Widgerboard and automatic writing and a number of regular spirit visitors. Her conscience rebels against a Sunday sitting, so she attends church instead... On Monday, however, the two inquirers again took their seats about the bamboo table and the following is a report of the séance as noted down by Miss Booth. 7.30pm On this occasion, proceedings were begun at once with the Ouija board. After a few minutes, a loud succession of raps announced the presence of a control. Question Good evening, who is that? Answer Pongo here. Good evening. Heaven bless you. Q We are glad to have you with us, Pongo. A Good. Very good. Here we are again. Q Is that you, Harry? A Yes. Only to give my love. Such a crowd. Q The more the better. We are glad to meet all our friends. What can we do for you? A Attend. Obey the spirits. Q. We will do all we can if you will tell us what to do. A. Boil your heads. Q. Go away, George. We don't want you. A. Get off the line, silly. Q. Pongo, can't you send them away? Here the pencil drew a sketch of an ugly face. Q. Is that your portrait? A. That's me, GW, ha ha. The pencil zigzagged violently and drove the board right over the edge of the table. When it was replaced, it started to write in the hand we associate with Pongo. A. I have sent him away. Very noisy tonight. F. Jealous and sends him to disturb us. Never mind. Pongo more powerful. Q. Who do you say is jealous? A. Never mind. Bad person. Maladetta. Q. Is Harry still there? A. No. Other business. There is a spirit here who wishes your help. Q. Who is it? A. Very hard. Wait! The pencil made a series of wide loops. Q. What letter is that? A. Silly! Don't be impatient. There is difficulty. I will try again. The pencil scribbled a few more minutes and then wrote a large C. Q. We have got the letter C. Is that right? A. C. 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 Q. We have got the C. A. C. R. E. Here, there was another violent interruption. A. In Pongo's writing. She is trying, but there is much opposition. Think helpful thoughts. Q. Would you like us to sing a hymn? A. Pongo again, very angry. Stupid! Be quiet! Here, the writing changed again. M-O-Q Is that part of the same word? A-R-N-A Q Do you mean Cremorna? A in the new writing. Cremorna! Cremorna! Through! Glad! 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 At this point, Miss Booth turned to Miss Clemson and said in a puzzled voice, this is very strange. Cremorna was Mrs. Rayburn's stage name. I do hope, surely she can't have passed away suddenly. She was perfectly comfortable when I left her. Had I better go and see? Perhaps it's another Cremona," suggested Miss Clemson. But it's such an unusual name. Why not ask who it is? Q. Cremorna, what is your second name? A. The pencil writing very fast. Rose Garden, easier now. Q. I don't understand you. A. Rose, 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 silly! Q. Oh, my dear, she's mixing up the two names. Do you mean Cremona Garden? A. Yes! Q. Rosanna Rayburn? A. Yes! Q. Have you passed over? A. Not yet. In exile. Q. Are you still in the body? A. Neither in the body nor out of the body, waiting. Pongo interposing. When what you call the mind is departed, the spirit waits in exile for the great change. Why can't you understand? Make haste. Great difficulties. Q. We are so sorry. Are you in trouble about something? A. Great trouble. Q. I hope it isn't anything to do with Dr. Brown's treatment or mine. A. Pongo. Do not be so foolish. Cremorna. My will. Q. Do you want to alter your will? A. No. Miss Clemson. Well, that is fortunate, because I don't think it would be legal. What do you want us to do about it, dear Mrs Rayburn? A. Send it to Norman. Q. To Mr Norman Urquhart. A. Yes, he knows. Q. He knows what is to be done with it. A. He wants it. Q. Very well, can you tell us where to find it? A. I have forgotten. Search. Q. Is it in the house? A. I tell you, I have forgotten. Deep waters, no safety, failing, failing. Here the writing became very faint and irregular. Q. Who is that? A. Pongo. She has gone. The bad influence back. Ha ha. Get off. Finished now. The pencil ran right out of the medium's control and on being replaced on the table refused to answer any further questions. How dreadfully vexatious, exclaimed Miss Booth. I suppose you have no idea where the will is. Not in the least. In the B, she said. Now what could that be? In the bank, perhaps, suggested Miss Climpson. It might be. If so, of course, Mr Urquhart would be the only person who could get it out. Then why hasn't he? She said he wanted it. Of course, then it must be somewhere in the house. What could B stand for? Oh, box, bag, bureau? bed it might be almost anything what a pity she couldn't finish the message shall we try again or shall we look in all the likely places let's look for it first and then if we can't find it we can try again oh that's a good idea there are some keys in one of the bureau drawers that belong to her boxes and things why not try them said miss Clemson boldly we will you'll come and help won't you If you think it advisable, I'm a stranger, you know. The message came to you as much as to me. I'd rather you came with me. You might be able to suggest places. Miss Clemson made no further ado and then went upstairs. It was a queer business, practically robbing a helpless woman in the interests of someone she had never seen. Queer, but the motive must be a good one if it were Lord Peter's. At the top of the beautiful staircase, with its ample curve, was a long, wide corridor, the walls hung thickly from floor to ceiling, with portraits, sketches, framed autograph letters, programmes and all the reminiscent bric-a-brac of the green room. "'All her life is here, and in these two rooms,' said the nurse." If this collection was to be sold, it would fetch a lot of money. I suppose it will be some day. Whom does the money go to, do you know? Well, I've always thought it would be to Mr Norman Urquhart. He's a relation of hers, about the only one, I believe, but I've never been told anything about it. She pushed open a tall door, graceful with curved panels and classical architrave, and turned on the light. It was a stately great room, with three tall windows and a ceiling gracefully moulded with garlands of flowers and flambeau. The purity of its lines was, however, defaced and insulted by a hideous rose-trellised wallpaper and heavy plush curtains of a hot crimson with thick gold fringes and ropes, like the drop curtain of a Victorian playhouse. Every foot of space was crammed thick with furniture, pool tables incongruously jostling mahogany chiffoniers, what-not tables strewn with ornaments cuddling the bases of heavy German marbles and bronzes, lacquer screens, Sheraton Bureau, Chinese vases, alabaster lamps, chairs, ottomans of every shape, colour and period, clustered thick as plants wrestling for existence in a tropical jungle. It was the room of a woman, without taste or moderation, who refused nothing and surrendered nothing, to whom the fact of possession had become the one steadfast reality in a world of loss and change. It may be here or in the bedroom, said Miss Booth. I'll get her keys. She opened a door on the right. Miss Clemson, endlessly inquisitive, tiptoed in after her. The bedroom was even more a nightmare than the sitting room. A small electric reading lamp, burned dimly by the bed, huge and gilded, with hangings of rose brocade cascading in long folds from a tester supported by fat golden cupids. Outside the narrow circle of light loomed monstrous wardrobes, more cabinets, tall chests of drawers. The dressing table, frilled and flounced, held a wide threefold mirror and a monstrous cheval glass in the centre of the room darkly reflected the towering and shadowy outlines of the furniture. Miss Booth opened the middle door of the largest wardrobe. It swung back with a creak, letting out a great gush of frangipani. Nothing, evidently, had been altered in this room since silence and paralysis had struck the owner down. Miss Clemson stepped softly up to the bed. Instinct made her move cautiously as a cat, though it was evident that nothing would ever startle or surprise its occupant. An old, old face, so tiny in the vast expanse of sheet and pillow that it might have been a doll, stared up at her, with unblinking, unseeing eyes. It was covered with fine surface wrinkles, like a hand sodden with soapy water, but all the great lines, carved by experience, had been smoothed out and crumpled. It reminded Miss Clemson of a child's pink balloon from which nearly all the air has leaked away. The escaping breath puffed through the lax lips in little blowing, snorting sounds and added to the resemblance. From under the frilled nightcap, "'straggled a few lank wisps of whitened hair. "'Funny, isn't it?' said Miss Booth. "'To think that with her lying like that, "'her spirit can communicate with us.' "'Miss Clemson was overcome by a sense of sacrilege. "'It was only by a great effort "'that she prevented herself from confessing the truth. "'She had pulled the garter with the soapbox above her knee for safety.' and the elastic was cutting painfully into the muscles of her leg, a kind of reminder of her iniquities. But Miss Booth had already turned away, and was pulling open the drawers of one of the Bureau. Two hours passed, and they were still searching. The letter B opened up a particularly wide field of search. Miss Clemson had chosen it on that account, and her foresight was rewarded. By a little ingenuity, that useful letter could be twisted to fit practically any hiding place in the house. The things that were neither bureau, beds, bags, boxes, baskets, nor tables could usually be described as big, black, brown, or boule, or, at a pinch, as being bedroom or boudoir furniture. And since every shelf, drawer and pigeonhole in every object was crammed full of newspaper cuttings, letters and assorted souvenirs, the searchers soon found their heads, legs and backs aching with effort. I'd no idea, said Miss Booth, that there could be so many possible places. Miss Clemson, sitting on the floor with her back hair uncoiling itself and her decent black petticoats tucked up nearly to the soap box, agreed wearily. "'It's dreadfully exhausting, isn't it?' said Miss Booth. "'Wouldn't you like to stop? I can go on searching tomorrow by myself. "'It's a shame to tire you out in this way.' "'Miss Clemson turned this over in her mind. "'If the will were found in her absence and sent to Norman Urquhart, "'would Miss Murchison be able to get hold of it "'before it was again hidden away or destroyed?' "'She wondered. "'Hidden away, not destroyed.' The mere fact that the will had been sent to him by Miss Booth would prevent the solicitor from making away with it, for there would be a witness to its existence. But he might successfully conceal it for a considerable time, and time was of the essence of this adventure. Oh, I'm not a scrap-tired, she said brightly, sitting up on her heels and restoring her coiffure to something more like its usual neatness. She had a black notebook in her hand, taken from a drawer in one of the Japanese cabinets and was turning its pages mechanically. A line of figures caught her eye. Twelve, eighteen, four, zero, nine, three, fifteen, and she wondered vaguely what they referred to. We've looked through everything here, said Miss Booth. I don't believe we've missed anything. Unless, of course, there is a secret drawer somewhere. Could it be in a book, do you think? A book! "'Why, of course it might. How silly of us not to think of that. "'In detective stories, wills are always hidden in books.' "'More often than in real life,' thought Miss Clemson, "'but she got up and dusted herself and said cheerfully, "'So they are. Are there many books in the house?' Thousands, said Miss Booth, downstairs in the library. "'I shouldn't have expected Mrs Rayburn to be a great reader somehow.' "'Oh, I don't think she was. The books were bought with the house, Sir Mr Urquhart told me. "'They're nearly all old ones, you know. Big things bound in leather. "'Dreadfully dull. I've never found a thing there to read. "'But they're just the sort of books to hide wills in.' They emerged into the corridor. "'By the way,' said Miss Clemson, "'Won't the servants think it funny of us to be wandering about the place so late?' They all sleep in the other wing. Besides, they know that I sometimes have visitors. Mrs Craig has often been here as late as this when we have had interesting sittings. There's a spare bedroom where I can put people up when I want to. Miss Clemson made no more objections and they went downstairs and along the hall into the library. It was big and books filled the walls and bays in serried ranks. A heart-breaking sight. Of course, said Miss Booth, if the communication hadn't insisted on something beginning with B. Well, well, I should have expected any papers to be in the safe down here. Miss Clemson groaned in spirit. The obvious place, naturally. If only her misplaced ingenuity, well, one must make the best of it. Why not look, she suggested. The letter B may have been referring to something quite different or it may have been an interruption from George Washington. It would be quite like him to use words beginning with a B, don't you think? But if it was in the safe, Mr Urquhart would know about it. Miss Clemson began to feel that she had let her invention play about too freely. It wouldn't do any harm to make sure, she suggested. But I don't know the combination, said Miss Booth. Mr Urquhart does, of course. We could write and ask him. An inspiration came to Miss Clemson. I believe I know it, she exclaimed. There was a row of seven figures in the black notebook I was looking at just now and it passed through my mind that they might be a memorandum of something. Black book, cried Miss Booth. Why, there you are. How could we have been so silly? Of course, Mrs Rayburn was trying to tell us where to find the combination. Miss Clemson again blessed the all-round utility of the letter B. I'll run up and fetch it, she cried. When she came down again, Miss Booth was standing before a section of the bookshelves which had swung out from the wall, disclosing the green door of a built-in safe. With trembling hands, Miss Clemson touched the milled knob and turned it. The first attempt was unsuccessful, owing to the fact that the note did not make it clear which way the knob should be turned first. But at the second attempt, the pointer swung over on the seventh figure with a satisfying click. Miss Booth seized the handle, and the heavy door moved and stood open. A bundle of papers lay inside. On the top, staring them in the face, was a long-sealed Envelope. Miss Clemson pounced upon it. Will of Rosanna Rayburn, five June nineteen twenty. Well, isn't that marvelous? cried Miss Booth. On the whole, Miss Clemson agreed with her. Chapter XIX, nineteen. Miss Clemson stayed the night in the spare bedroom. The best thing, she said, will be for you to write a little letter to Mr Urquhart, explaining about the seance and saying that you thought it best and safest to send the will on to him. He will be very much surprised, said Miss Booth. I wonder what he will say. Lawyers don't believe in spirit communications as a rule, and he'll think it rather funny that we should have managed to open the safe. Well, the spirit led us directly to the combination, didn't it? He could hardly expect you to ignore a message like that, could he? The proof of your good faith is that you are sending the will straight to him. And it would be as well, don't you think, if you asked him to come up and check the other contents of the safe and have the combination altered. Wouldn't it be better if I kept the will and asked him to come for it? But perhaps he requires it urgently then why hasn't he been to fetch it? Miss Clemson noted with some irritation that where spiritualistic messages were not concerned, Miss Booth showed signs of developing an independent judgment. Well, he doesn't know yet that he wants it. Perhaps the spirits foresaw an urgent need that will only arise tomorrow. Oh, yes, that's quite likely. If only people would avail themselves more fully of the marvellous guidance given to them, so much might be foreseen and provided for. Well, I think you are right. We will find a big envelope to fit it, and I will write a letter, and we will send it by the first post tomorrow. It had better be registered, said Miss Clemson. If you will entrust it to me, I will take it down to the post office, first thing. Will you? That will be a Great relief to my mind. Well, now, I'm sure you're as tired as I am, so I'll put on a kettle for the hot water bottles and we'll turn in. Will you make yourself comfy in my sitting room? I've only got to put the sheets on your bed. What? No, indeed, I can do it in a moment. Please don't bother. I'm so used to making beds. Then I'll see to the kettles, said Miss Clemson. I simply must make myself useful. Very well. It won't take long. The water is quite hot in the kitchen boiler. Left alone in the kitchen, with the kettle bumping and singing on its way to boiling point, Miss Clemson wasted no time. She tiptoed quickly out again and stood with ear cocked at the foot of the stairs, listening to the nurse's footsteps as they pattered into the distance. Then she slipped into the little sitting room, took up the will in its sealed envelope and a long, thin paper knife, which she had already marked down as a useful weapon, and hastened back to the kitchen. It is astonishing how long a kettle, which seems to be on the verge of boiling, will take before the looked-for jet of steam steadily emerges from its spout. Delusive little puffs and deceptive pauses in the song tantalized the watcher interminably. It seemed to Miss Clemson that there would have been Time to make twenty beds before the kettle boiled that evening. But even a watched pot cannot absorb heat forever. After what appeared to be an hour, but was actually about seven minutes, Miss Clemson, guilty and furtive, was holding the flap of the envelope before the scalding steam. I mustn't hurry, said Miss Clemson. Oh, blessed saints, I mustn't hurry or I shall tear it. She slipped the paper knife under the flap. It lifted. It opened cleanly, just as Miss Booth's steps resounded in the passage. Miss Clemson adroitly dropped the paper knife behind the stove and thrust the envelope with the flap doubled back to prevent it from resticking itself behind a dish cover on the wall. "'The water's ready!' she cried blithely. "'Where are the bottles?' It is a tribute to her nerve that she filled them with a steady hand. Miss Booth thanked her and departed upstairs, a bottle in each hand. Miss Clemson pulled the will from its hiding place, drew it from its envelope, and glanced swiftly through it. It was not a long document, and in spite of the legal phraseology, its purport was easily gathered. Within three minutes she had replaced it, moistened the gum... "'and stuck the flap down again. "'She put it in her petticoat pocket, "'for her garments were of a useful and old-fashioned kind, "'and went to hunt in the pantry. "'When Miss Booth returned, she was making tea peacefully. "'I thought it would refresh us after our labours, she remarked. "'A very good idea,' said Miss Booth. "'In fact, I was just going to suggest it.' "'Miss Clemson carried the teapot,' to the sitting room, leaving Miss Booth to follow with the cups, milk and sugar on a tray. With the teapot on the hob and the will once again lying innocently on the table, she smiled and breathed deeply. Her mission was accomplished. A letter from Miss Clemson to Lord Peter Whimsey, Tuesday, January 7, 1930. My dear Lord Peter, as my telegram this morning will have informed you, I have succeeded. Though what excuse I can find in my conscience for the methods I have used, I don't know. But I believe the church takes into account the necessity of deception in certain professions, such as that of a police detective or a spy in time of warfare, and I trust that my subterfuges may be allowed to come under that category. However, you will not want to hear about my religious scruples, so I will hasten to let you know what I have discovered. In my last letter, I explained the plan I had in mind, so you will know what to do about the will itself, which was duly dispatched by registered post this morning undercover to Mr Norman Urquhart. How surprised he will be to get it. Miss Booth wrote an excellent covering letter which I saw before it went, which explains the circumstances and mentions no names. I have wired to Miss Murchison to expect the package, and I hope that when it comes she will contrive to be present at the opening, so as to constitute yet another witness to its existence. In any case, I should not think he would venture to tamper with it. Perhaps Miss Murchison may be able to investigate it in detail, which I had not had time to do, it was almost adventurous and I am looking forward to telling you all about it when I come back. But in case she is not able to do so, I will give you the rough outline. The property consists of real estate, the house and grounds, and a personality, I am not good at legal terms, which I am not able to calculate exactly, but the gist of it all is this. The real estate is left to Philip Boyce, absolutely. £50,000 is left to Philip Boyce, also in cash. The remainder, is not this called the residue, is left to Norman Urquhart, who is appointed sole executor. There are a few small legacies to stage charities, of which I did not manage to memorise any particulars. There is a special paragraph explaining that the greater part of the property is left to Philip Boyce in token that the testatrix forgives the ill treatment meted out to her by his family for which he was not responsible. The date of the will is 5 June 1920 and the witnesses are Eva Gubbins, housekeeper, and John Briggs, gardener. I hope, dear Lord Peter, that this information will be enough for your purpose. I had hoped that even after Miss Booth had enclosed the will in a covering envelope, I might be able to take it and pursue it at leisure. But unfortunately she sealed it for greater security with Mrs Rayburn's private seal, which I had not sufficient dexterity to remove and replace, though I understand it is possible to do so with a hot knife.' You will understand that I cannot leave Windle just yet. It would look so odd to do so immediately after this occurrence. Besides, I am hoping in a further series of sittings to warn Miss Booth against Mrs Craig and her control for Dora, as I am quite sure that this person is quite a greater charlatan as I am. And without my altruistic motives... So you will not be surprised if I am away from town for, say, another week? I am a little worried about the extra expense of this, but if you do not think it justified for the sake of safety, let me know and I will alter my arrangements accordingly. Wishing you all success, dear Lord Peter. Most sincerely yours, Catherine A. Clemson. P.S. I managed to do the job very nearly within the stipulated week, you see. I am so sorry it was not quite finished yesterday, but I was so terrified of spoiling the whole thing by rushing it. Bunter, said Lord Peter, looking up from this letter. I knew there was something fishy about that will. Yes, my lord. There is something about wills which brings out the worst side of human nature. People who, under ordinary circumstances, are perfectly upright and amiable, go as curly as corkscrews and foam at the mouth whenever they hear the words, I devise and bequeath. That reminds me, a spot of champagne in a silver tankard is no bad thing to celebrate on. Get up a bottle of the pommery and tell Chief Inspector Parker I should be glad of a word with him. And bring me those notes of Mr. Arbuthnot's. And, oh, Bunter, my lord, get Mr. Crofts on the phone and give him my compliments and say I have found the criminal and the motive and hope presently to produce proof of the way the crime was done if he will see the case is put off for a week or so. Very good, my lord. All the same, Bunter, I really don't know how it was done. That will undoubtedly suggest itself before long, my lord. Oh, yes, said Whimsy airily. Of course. Of course I'm not worrying about a trifle like that. couldn't it. Any more than you could did Or I Bessie couldn't help it, though she tried to beagle. Oh, so good. she was pretty as a heaven above. Oh boy, and how she could love. Oh, Bessie had affection that was simply of the not go down and no mind. couldn't help it any more than you could. I can reliably predict that some of the following material will be triggering for some of you in varying degrees. We don't have to pull the trigger Come along, just show some mercy The whole point of these warnings is to give you choice You can plan for the time and place to listen so you can be assured of having the resources you need Or alternatively you can just not bother He's it he off, off so he has his scarpered. Brave the off and run away no. bravely ran away away I didn't when danger is I, and he out. Bravely I never his did. He a very brave retreat. Oh, of brave. I'm not living under a rock because I'm not an actual radioactive cockroach. Therefore, I am aware that there's been heaps of publicity regarding defamation suits. Christian Porter, Jeffrey Rush, we're looking at you, among many. But us cockroaches do have to consider how and where we make disclosures, partly in the context of the laws of defamation. defamation, defamation. So here I am, reading in selected excerpts from the Parliamentary Council's Committee Model Defamation Provisions. You can find the link to this in the notes on the podcast feed, and also on our Facebook page. And the domain from which I drew them was the website of the Law Reform Commission of Victoria. I'm choosing to read the sections that provided me with the clarity I needed in achieving a general understanding of how these laws operate. I have read these documents from the public domain, excluding some technical bits and some repetitive or dull bits. I may even have made one or two small errors, so this reading should not be considered to be legal information or advice. It's just for the vibe, a general understanding. Always read the actual documents with the competent advice of an actual lawyer if you have any real interest in any real matter. Section 3. Objects of the Act. The objects of this Act are A. To enact provisions to promote uniform laws of defamation in Australia, and B. To ensure that the law of defamation does not place unreasonable limits on freedom of expression and, in particular, on the publication and discussion of matters of public interest and importance, and C to provide effective and fair remedies for persons whose reputations are harmed by the publication of defamatory matter and D, to promote speedy and non-litigious methods of resolving disputes about the publication of defamatory matter. I now move to section two and one section with it. Matter includes A. An article, report, advertisement or other thing communicated by means of a newspaper, magazine or other periodical and B. A program, report, advertisement or other thing communicated by means of television, radio, the internet or any other form of electronic communication and C. A letter, note or other writing and D. A picture Gesture or oral utterance, and e, any other thing by means of which something may be communicated to a person. <music> I now draw your attention to two general principles within the section: general principles. There is no distinction between slander and libel. And there is no course of action for defamation of or against deceased persons. You can't defame the dead. sections from part three resolution of civil disputes without litigation division one concerns notices and offers to make amends section 12 application of division one this division applies if a person the publisher publishes matter the matter in question that is or may be defamatory of another person the aggrieved person 12a. Concerns Notices. For the purpose of this Act, a notice is a concerns notice if a. The notice 1. is in writing, 2. Specifies the location where the matter in question can be accessed, for example, a web page address, and 3. Informs the publisher of the defamatory imputations that the aggrieved person considers are or may be carried about the aggrieved person by the matter in question. The imputations of concern. And 4. Informs the publisher of the harm that the person considers to be serious harm to the person's reputation caused or likely to be caused by the publication of the matter in question. And 5. For an aggrieved person that is an excluded corporation, also informs the publisher of the financial loss that the corporation considers to be serious financial loss caused or likely to be caused by the publication of the matter in question and b a copy of the matter in question, if practicable, provided to the publisher together with the notice. And there are more rules about the two in a well, B Defamation proceedings cannot be commenced without concerns notice. An aggrieved person cannot commence defamation proceedings unless a The person has given the proposed defendant a concerns notice in respect of the matter concerned and B. The imputations to be relied on by the person in the proposed proceedings were particularised in the concerns notice. And I'm sorry I'm laughing but that really is. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled pecker. That number B. The imputations to be relied on by the person in the proposed proceedings were particularised in the concerns notice and C. The applicable period for an offer to make amends has elapsed. There are some exceptions. detailed in sections 2 to 5. 13. Publisher may make an offer to make amends. 1. The publisher may make an offer to make amends to the aggrieved person. 2. The offer may be A. In relation to the matter in question generally or B. Limited to any particular defamatory imputations that the publisher accepts that the matter in question carries. Section fourteen. When offer to make amends may be made, and this relates to time limits largely. Section fifteen. Content to make amends. 1. An offer to make amends a. must be in writing and b. must be readily identifiable as an offer to make amends under this division and b. one must provide for the offer to be open for acceptance for at least 28 days commencing on the day the offer is made and c. if the offer is limited to any particular defamatory imputations, must state that the offer is so limited and particularise the imputations to which the offer is limited. And D. Must include an offer to publish or join in publishing, a reasonable correction of, or a clarification of, or additional information about, the matter in question or, if the offer is limited to any particular defamatory imputations, the imputations to which the offer is limited, and E. If the material containing the matter has been given to someone else by the publisher or with the publisher's knowledge, must include an offer to take or join in taking reasonable steps to tell the other person that the matter is or may be defamatory of the aggrieved person and f must include an offer to pay the expenses reasonably incurred by the aggrieved person before the offer was made and the expenses reasonably incurred by the aggrieved person in considering the offer. 1a in addition to the matters just read out An offer to make amends may include any other kind of offer or particulars of any other action taken by the publisher to redress the harm sustained by the aggrieved person because of the matter in question, including but not limited to a. An offer to publish or join in publishing an apology in relation to the matter in question or if the offer is limited to any particular defamatory imputations, the imputations to which the offer is limited, or b if the matter has been published on a website or any other electronically accessible location, an offer to remove the matter from the website or location, or c. an offer to pay compensation for any economic or non-economic loss of the aggrieved person, or d. the particulars of any correction or apology made or action taken before the date of the offer. 2. Without limiting any of the above, An offer to pay compensation may comprise or include any one or more of the following. a. An offer to pay a stated amount. b. An offer to pay an amount to be agreed upon between the publisher and the aggrieved person. c. An offer to pay an amount determined by an arbitrator appointed or agreed on by the publisher and the aggrieved person. d. An offer to pay an amount determined by a court. And then there are details about what it means to go to court to achieve that. 16. Withdrawal of offer to make amends. Details how a publisher can withdraw and renew offers within time limits. 17. Effective acceptance of offer to make amends. 1. If the publisher carries out the terms of an offer to make amends, including payment of any compensation under the offer that is accepted, the aggrieved person cannot assert, continue or enforce an action for defamation against the publisher in relation to the matter in question, even if the offer was limited to any particular defamatory imputations. 2. A court may, but need not, a. Order the publisher to pay the aggrieved person the expenses reasonably incurred by the aggrieved person as a result of accepting the offer and b. Order any costs incurred by the aggrieved person that form part of those expenses to be assessed on an indemnity basis. 17. Effective acceptance of offer to make amends. It then details how the process is shut down and who pays for what. 18. Effective failure to accept reasonable offer to make amends. 1. If an offer to make amends is made in relation to the matter in question, but is not accepted, it is a defence to an action for defamation against the publisher in relation to the matter if a. The publisher made the offer as soon as reasonably practicable after the publisher was given a concern's notice in respect of the matter, and, in any event, within the applicable period for an offer to make amends and B. The publisher was ready and willing on acceptance of the offer by the aggrieved person to carry out the terms of the offer and C. In all the circumstances, the offer was reasonable. Part 2 details what the court must take into account in determining whether an offer to make amends is reasonable. Division 2 Apologies 20. Effect of Apology on Liability for Defamation 1. An apology made by or on behalf of a person in connection with any defamatory matter alleged to have been published by the person a. Does not constitute an express or implied admission of fault or liability by the person in connection with that matter and b is not relevant to the determination of fault or liability in connection with that matter. 2. Evidence of an apology made by or on behalf of a person in connection with any defamatory matter alleged to have been published by the person is not admissible in any civil proceedings as evidence of the fault or liability of the person in connection with that matter. That is a go through the pre-litigation options supplied under the laws of the entire land. It involves two things, concerns notices and offers to make amends. In the final Judy DL Read Stuff Aloud for the Foreseeable Future, which will be in the episode after next, we'll look at litigation in the world of defamation, with particular focuses on defences. If you're still listening at this point, email me. I'll send you a cockroach medal. They exist and you've earned it. So take it easy and come back next time for some chat, some comedy and some comfort.